You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verse 13, we're going to be reading in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. This is our series through Hebrews. We've been walking through the book. Today, the anchor of the soul. Hebrews 6, verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for the confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have the strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus, gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Do you ever have doubts? <laughs> Do you ever have times in life when you're, you maybe question whether you're on the right way, <laughs> the right path, whether this is really real? <laughs> maybe it's just me sometimes. <laughs> maybe it is in those times where we spoke about the storms of life that come upon, the persecutions and trials and hardships that come, and whether we're able to weather the storm, right? or maybe just in faith in general. Is it, can God really be trusted? Is the Bible worth listening to and shaping and molding our lives after? Is this for real? Or like the seeds that are sown and they fall on the rocky ground, they took and then when the hardships and trials and persecutions and the sun came out, it dried them up and the sun shone down and, and then they were burned, they dried out. They did not drive their roots deeper and be pressed in, but rather the storms, the hardships washed them away, you could say, and they did not last. That's what happens to your soul when you feel like you're in the midst of a storm, when you feel like you're storm-tossed? Will you find that your soul is hooked deeper to the refuge of the living hope of Jesus Christ? Or will we find ourselves like the story in Matthew where our hope is built on sinking sand? The story goes in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine does them. Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears my words and does them and, and does them is like a wise man that built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, 
uh, mind and does not do them, they will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I think I've told you this story before um, and so forgive me, uh, but when you've been at the same church for now preaching for seven years, <laughs> or almost seven years, I guess, you're gonna hear some of the stories again and again, right? Um, but my wife and I went to a mission trip to uh, Micronesia, and uh, it was out there when I really first realized what it was like to feel storm-tossed, and to feel uh, like you're in the middle of the ocean with nothing to ground you. Uh, we, we went on a, a short-term mission trip out there. Uh, Micronesia is kind of south of Guam, out in the Pacific Ocean, and we were uh, working with a mission called a Grace Dental and Medical Mission, where we brought de- dental and medical care to uh, very far, unreached groups out into very rural and needy areas in order to open doors for the gospel and to work hand-in-hand with local church planters and missionaries. Uh, but this in particular trip me- meant that we had to go island hopping. In Micronesia, it's micro islands. And so uh, you get on these little tiny boats and you go from island to island. And that's one thing to do that within a lagoon, a protected kind of land barrier surrounding a lot of small islands. But this one d- part of the trip, um, we had to go outside of the lagoon. And uh, in these tiny little boats, we exited the lagoon. And uh, we were supposed to have five boats carrying and splitting all our gear and all the people in our group. Uh, but we ended up finding out that two of the boats, their engines were broken, didn't work. Uh, so all the five boats, we had to cram into three boats. And uh, this is what one of our boats looked like. Uh, that's me on the gray shirt on the left. And Jamie's right next to me. You can't see her because her head is buried in her head. And she's actually has a great fear of water and she's in fact the bravest person I know because she braved her fear of water by going and doing the most insane thing I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, But we spent five hours on that dinky tiny little boat Um, and I, yes, probably the most scared I've ever been because there was a moment where we were out in that dinky little boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to a point where I can still remember in my head looking around me 360 degrees and seeing zero land. Now on any horizon around you, can you pick out a point of land? And that's one thing to do that when you're on one of those giant cruise ships that I know some of you people take. It's another to do that when you're in that, okay? And then there's one moment when we're on that in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I cannot see land and the waves are so large, uh, they're more like hills. So what you do is you go up one wave and down the other one and then when you come up the other wave, you find where your other boat is and you're trying to follow that and you're going down up and down and there was one moment where we landed down uh, the hill of one of the waves and we kind of went to the side and a wave kind of came up and splashed into the motor. And some of you who know all this kind of stuff, when water gets into the motor, it it, uh, freezes the motor, whatever. I'm not big on this kind of stuff. It stops working, okay? And so we're going, and all of a sudden, you are going, ween, this little, and then it it chokes and stops. And our our, uh, engine stopped working. And I can remember that was the longest five minutes of my entire life, thinking, I'm not sure if this thing will get started. And our guide and our friend, truly, he was like, uh-oh, you know. And he's over there flipping the motion, and he's, he's pull-starting the thing, which what felt like an eternity, right? And it took multiple starts. We could not get it started. And then I'm just like praying, oh dear Lord, oh dear Lord, you know. And, uh, but it's in that moment when you're not going anywhere and you have no anchor holding you down and there's nothing to hold you down, you're at the mercy of the Pacific Ocean to tell you where you are headed and where you are pointed. 
And I can still remember feeling you're headed on there and all of a sudden you slow to a stop and you're moving and you're rolling and the, bo the boat feels now like a little canoe before, you know, and you're kind of worried about flopping over and then the, the waves start and you get turning all around and you can't really tell what direction you are and where you're going and you feel, and that was on a sunny day. I can't imagine what that would be like in the middle of a storm in a dinky little boat tossing you from side to side, losing your orientation as to where things are. You can't really tell which direction is which. The stars aren't out, so you can't orient themselves as if I could do that anyways, right? You know? But then our other people in the boat came back and rescued us, and yes, we lived. We eventually got uh, the thing started. Uh, they primed it again with some other help, and they got it going, and they started, and we, we made it to the island. And then we camped out on the island for several days and returned. It was an incredible trip. We did it, but I just still f remember the pit feeling in my stomach of feeling like I was storm-tossed, uh, flopping around in that boat. And it's in those moments where you can't really see where you, where you want to see, like this next picture shows a lighthouse, where you've all been there. This is just a picture, I don't know, my amazing photography. This is a picture off of my phone, you know, iPhone. I'm a photographer, right? So I took that. You guys all know where that is, right? And then up in Maine there, and, and it's a beautiful picture, but that you, you, you see that. I remember visiting, this was a couple years ago, but it was a windy, stormy day, and you see those waves just smashing against the rocks. And imagine being out there on the ocean and then seeing that lighthouse, that direction point, that thing that kind of hones you in as to where safety is and things to avoid, and yet that storm can smash against those rocks, but it'll do nothing to harm it. It's solid. It's something you can hold fast onto. And I can remember that same feeling when uh, we visited Gloucester and my daughter was very young. I'll go to the next picture. And this is me and Charlie. That's Charlie's six now. This was like, she was like a year and a half, I feel like. And we visited and I can remember standing out there and it was a little windy. It was a nice day, but it was a little windy. She was nervous to be out there with the ocean all around in this little jetty. And she wanted me to hold her and so we got a picture. But I can still, you know what it feels like, a child holding onto you and kind of gripping you. They feel safe with you. They don't want to stand on their own. They want to, as the passage here in Hebrews says, hold fast to you. And it's those things that are sure. I'm standing on a rock and it's strong and it's powerful. And we hold fast to the things that are sure and steadfast like an anchor in the storm, a, a lighthouse in the distance to give us orientation, a hope that, is, that is, goes behind the curtain and holds us down. Jesus, our forerunner, and so these three pictures, I just want to keep in your mind. You can take that off. I really don't want you to be staring at me there the whole time. Uh, but uh, hopefully it'll stick in your mind somewhat of what we're talking about today. Hope is a sure and steadfast anchor in the soul when our soul especially feels like it is storm-tossed with the waves and the weather of life. Last week we talked through a passage in Hebrews 6 that was a more challenging passage that spoke about how we can fall away and drift away from the things of God if we do not continue uh, enduring in our faith. And yet here the writer says, I feel sure of better things for you, things of salvation that we should, as it says in verse 11, to have full assurance of hope until the end that we would not be sluggish but we would be imitators of those through faith and patience that we would inherit the promise. He's encouraging us not to be lazy but to, to be like, uh, to work hard and, and to run the race and to endure. This is the, the theme. And, and then to imitate those who through faith and patience, those two ideas coming together, will allow us to inherit the promises of God. 
And as we've remarked, the writer of Hebrews here is much and very much like a preacher where he's speaking into an idea and then he almost in the next verse, in verse 13, he almost says, speaking of promises, and kind of goes right into an illustration. And so speaking of promises, you remember, right, in Hebrews, in Hebrews he often goes back into the Old Testament and he gives us illustrations. So speaking of that, it would, it would kind of be like for us today, like an American, you know? Speaking of, uh, you know, that idea as an American, you, remember, you know George Washington, you remember him, right? When he crossed the Delaware River, right? And he did a surprise attack, or, or you remember George Washington, the old story about how he chopped down the cherry tree and all, he could not tell a lie, right? So, so he's speaking to the Hebrew people here, and he says, you know, remember your father Abraham. You all know this story. Remember when God made a promise with him to bless and multiply you as a nation? Surely you remember this, right? And some of you are like, yeah, I remember that. Some of you are like, dude, I'm new to this whole church thing. I don't know what you're talking about, okay? So, well, let's go back. In Genesis 15, I'm not gonna read the whole chapter, but I do wanna kinda give you a reference point for what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He goes all the way back in Genesis 15, and um, I might just jump around a little bit here, but he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. In verses one through 18, he speaks about this time when really he is called. It says after these things, or in, G- in chapter 12, he's called by Abraham. Uh, Ab- sorry, God calls Abraham in 12, and then verse 15, he makes a covenant with him. And, and he has this very unique storyline in verse 17 where, where he, um, well actually in verse five of Genesis 15 it says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And this is the key phrase, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. This Abraham believed in faith the things of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God is this very unique kind of covenant ceremony where they take a a sacrifice, they cut it in half and they go between it and God makes a, a covenant promise with Abraham and he promises to bless him. He promises to make him the father of a multitude of nations it says in chapter 17. Then later on, even in chapter 22, is is the sacrifice of Isaac where it is tested and and, uh, he is tested, his faith is tested, but the Lord provides. And in Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you, God says, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of heaven and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Your nation, my nation, the whole earth will be blessed through them. That's an incredible promise. And then we go all the way back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter six where in verse 14 he says that God made a promise with Abraham and then he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you. Right? That's the, what we find here in verse 14. This is that same phrasing, same word, same kind of allusion he's making. But I find it fascinating in verse 13 and 14 where he's starting this idea where really in the beginning it says God made a promise. God made a promise, it was received in faith, and then it was inherited through patience. But the fact that God making a promise still is striking to me, right? The point here is that really this promise that God made to Abraham extends even to us today. That there is certainty that God kept his promise to Abraham and God will keep his promise to you. And God is trustworthy. It is impossible for God to lie. Put your faith and trust in him and you will not be let down. And this is the road of faith, the road of endurance. 
As Hebrews 10 even reminds us that this road of endurance that we walk on in faith, it says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Hebrews 10 says, uh, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. Verse 36 of Hebrews 10, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is promised? Now, maybe we still doubt this. We still doubt maybe, like, what is this promise? I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, and I know it can be one of those things. I think the writer even anticipates this. Is God really trustworthy? Is his promise really sure? Though we have a tendency to doubt what he might say, he says this in verse 15, in 16, that he waited patiently for the promise. And then verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And he, and he makes this illustration for us. He says, well, people, people swear by something greater than themselves and are making oaths and promises all the time. Because why? Well, we have a tendency to break them. <laughs> like, and so we swear by something greater than ourselves to verify and bring confidence and assurance to others that we're serious and that we can be trusted and to, we will tell the truth and we will follow through. I give you my word, right? Or what do we do in in marriage ceremonies? We come together and we vow, we make oaths, we make promises, we say words that are supposed to mean something. (laughs) We say, I do. Through sickness and in health, through better, through worse. For for worse, we we come together and we promise, we make an oath. Uh, Situations uh, taking, the president is sworn in, you've heard that? Uh, They take an oath of office or whatever. The military, police officers I believe do similar things. Or in a courtroom, they put their hand upon the Bible. And I, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? Cross my heart and hope to die, right? You know, that's what he did. Something uh, more superior, something greater, something that holds weight and authority over me that will require me to keep my word. And so he says, we human beings, as it says in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves that in all their disputes an oath is final. And so when God, verse 17, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, to you and me and to the Israelite people, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He made a promise, he made an oath. God desired to convince the heirs of the promise, those who would come in the future, and to assuage their doubts that they might have, to help them in their doubts and to give them assurance in their faith. God took an oath, it almost seems silly, doesn't it? God took an oath. God's character demands that he needs to take an oath, make a pro, no. His character is unchangeable, he is trustworthy, God cannot lie, it says in, that, in this passage, it is impossible for God to lie, in verse 18. Two unchangeable things that God gives his word and another unchangeable thing that he makes an oath upon his word. Two unchangeable things you can bank on it. He did it for you. He guaranteed it. You ever see those in those infomercials? <laughs> I guarantee it, right? And you're like, really do you though? You know. And so it says here in verse, um, what is it, verse 17. It's to convince the heirs of the promises, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. He guaranteed it. Now, I um, found this word very fascinating. I looked it up, and uh, guaranteed is, is used in other places in the New Testament, uh, but this place where it's translated guaranteed is a unique word. It's used only here in the New Testament in this context. Kind of a unique wording. Uh, the author obviously is saying something by using this word guaranteed. 
in this way, in this form. And he gives us a little bit of an extra insight on this word guaranteed and what it means for us in our study today and for you. You know, some guarantees, like I made jokingly earlier, don't always hold the same weight as others, right? Uh, Some guarantees aren't actually a guarantee or a warranty that runs out a few days after you get it, right? Like the problem with our generation today where I guarantee, oh, you're gonna show up or you'll be there? Oh, I guarantee, yep, I'll be there, I promise. I promise I'll be there, right? How many times you've broken that promise, right? You know, how many times 10 minutes before you send a text saying, whoops, sorry, can't make it, you know? Happens all the time. We have this cancelitis culture, right, in today's world. Um, Yeah, I do it too, you know? You're like, oh, can't make it, just send a text, right? Our word doesn't hold the weight that it used to, you know? It doesn't hold the weight that it used to. And so like many deals or promises that are made today, some uh, times our word isn't really backed up to be what it is meant to be. But a guarantee in this situation is, is pretty powerful. God guaranteeing something. You can even think of this kind of in relation to um, hostage situations where you have a, a million dollars, right? And they want a million dollars for this hostage situation and the, the guy calls in and says, I want a million dollars by 12 midnight or else, right? Yet, how do you know they're gonna uphold the bargain and not take out the hostage? How do you know the hostage is even alive? So a good hostage negotiator, of course, you watch enough of these crime shows, they will say, right, well, how do I know that you will guarantee and keep your word? If I give you a million dollars, I need to know that she's still alive. Put her on the phone, you know, and they'll put her on the phone, right, and usually, you know, she'll let her a few words. She's alive, see, you know, it's guaranteed. She's alive and I'm gonna fulfill my end, you're gonna fulfill your end. And then they eventually make the swap and all of this kinds of things, a classic situation of, I need a guarantee, I need proof. Guaranteed is an actual here, and this word in this context is a unique form, like I said. It's a word that's actually related to the word mediator. So when God says he guarantees it, the form there, if you look it up, is actually coming from the word mediator in the Greek. So you could even think of in the context in chapter eight, verse six, the word mediate is actually a similar word here where it says, but as Christ has obtained a ministry that is far more excellent and old than the covenant that he mediates is better. First uh, Timothy, I think, is, I think it's First Timothy two, or it's Titus two, maybe it is. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator. You know that passage? One mediator between God and man. This is a similar word choice for guarantee and I thought that was unique. So Jesus here in this passage, as it's related to, is both the guarantee of the promise and as a result becomes the mediator to verify that guaranteed promise and covenant between God and man. God would bless Abraham and through faith and patience he would inherit the promise of eternal life and salvation so that you know today Jesus is the guarantee that God will keep his word that God will see you through. He has guaranteed it by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, and that is a guarantee that he will both save you, he will keep his promise, and you will be resurrected one day when he returns. God will hold you fast. He is something worth holding onto as well. We can put our hope in him. We're not to lose hope. We're not to shrink back, Hebrews would tell us, but rather to step forward because he sent Jesus as our guarantee.
Jesus, who now is our mediator, who is sitting at the right hand of God and mediates between the broken relationship between God and man. That relationship is restored through Jesus Christ, both the mediating presence between me and God and the guarantee that that promise will be come to fruition when he returns and be fulfilled in its consummated promise when he returns. And so we come to this place and we say, God guarantees it is impossible for him to lie. I can trust the promises of God. I have faith in him that he is good. The preacher of Hebrews gives us these illustrations during this time that give us a sense of trusting God and his promise. He gives us this illustration of a promise. Trust the promises of God because God will keep his promises. He has not failed me yet. And he gives us an illustration of an anchor. An anchor. Where are you casting your anchor today? Is a question I think we could ask. What, what are we holding fast to? What is that anchor attached to, you could say? Are you holding fast to an anchor? Is it holding fast? These are the questions we ask when we read a certain uh, illustration, a metaphor like this, a steadfast anchor of the soul. Look at this passage with me as it says in verse 18. Verse 18, but it's impossible to God to lie. And then it transitions and it says, we who have fled for refuge. You see that? We who have fled for refuge. This is uh, really, in a sense, a maritime, uh, a maritime uh, uh, illustration, a metaphor. In a sense, you could even say, without thinking of the maritime idea, it is even the sense that we are now refuge, refugees fleeing for refuge. One writer said the church is the refugee who must flee to God for rescue and who needs strong encouragement to seize the hope set before her. We flee for refuge. It is almost like I said a maritime metaphor which gives us a sense of like a storm that is coming and we are fleeing the sunken ship and we are swimming to the lighthouse, the rock, the thing in which that will hold us fast though the storms of life are beating and going all around us. We are fleeing for refuge, seeking maybe as a ship, seeking the small lee of an island to break the wind. We are looking across the horizon for safe harbor. We are fleeing for refuge and we are told to as a result to lay hold of the refuge that lays before us that's set before us that refuge which is our hope the hope that is set before us this preservation this um, you can almost say life preserver this thing in which when we're in the storm we hold fast to it we grip it white knuckled onto that life preserver it's the only thing that we need that will keep us afloat we grip it tightly so we do not let it go this is the, the feeling of the passage that has been building at this point you hold fast to the hope as it says in verse 18 You hold fast to the hope set before you. Don't let it go. Don't drop the prize in which you are striving towards. It is almost a race. There are so many metaphors mixed into this idea. Hebrews 12, one and two gives us the same sense. In Hebrews 12, we are running the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so what is hope? Hope is an anchor, and what does an anchor do? It connects us to something else. It connects us and binds us to something that will hold us fast, and it protects us from death, from sinking, and it grounds us in the middle of a storm. It is, as the passage said, solid. It is sure. It is steadfast. It's trustworthy. You can bank on it like God's promises. It will keep you from being tossed in the middle of life 
when everything around you and everyone seems to be scrambling for understanding and meaning and searching for things that are deeper in life, you find yourself grounded in meaning, grounding in life, grounding in eternal life and meaning and purpose and identity is found in Jesus. And so, though you might not be able to see the anchor now, it goes down into the water, it sinks down in, and there it is attached to something that is sure and steadfast. For you'll notice in the, va- in the passage in the next verse, verse 19, it says that we have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, and that it is a hope that does something. It does what? Enters. It enters. It enters behind something a curtain, a veil of sorts. This is found in Leviticus 16. It's in Hebrews where we've looked at it many different times. We've actually referenced Leviticus 16. It's quoted and used in allusions and metaphors all throughout the book of Hebrews. But Leviticus chapter 16 is about the uh, instructions for the day of atonement. We're actually in Leviticus 16 verse uh, two. It says, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat is upon the ark so that he may not die. Remember on the day of atonement in the tabernacle, the high priest would go behind the veil into the holy of holies to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat and make atonement for the sins of the people. How many times a year would he do this? One time a year, he would go behind the veil. One time a year, read Leviticus 16 sometime. It's fascinating. Estius, a Dutch theologian in the 16th century says this about this verse. He says, as the anchor does not stay in the waters, but enters the ground hidden beneath the waters, and it fastens itself into it. So hope, the anchor of the soul, is not satisfied by merely coming into the vestibule. That is, it is not content with merely earthly and visible goods and things, but it penetrates even to those which are within the veil, namely the holy of holies, where it lays hold to God himself, the heavenly goods, and fastens onto them. Hope entering within heaven hath made us already be in the things promised to us, even while we are still below, and we have not yet received them. Such strength one has as to cling those that are earthly to become heavenly. The soul clings as one in fear of shipwreck to an anchor, and sees not whither the cable of the anchor runs, or where it goes, where it is fastened, but she knows that it is good that it is fastened behind the veil which hides the future glory of our hope. See, Jesus is this link, <laughs> this guarantee of the one who, as the passage says back in Hebrews, Hebrews 6 says that he has gone behind, enters the inner place. Verse 20 says that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf that Jesus runs ahead. He goes behind the curtain, he peels it back, and he stands in that place and welcomes in. You see, apart from Jesus, you have no warrant to go into that place. You have no business with your sin to enter the holiest place on earth or to enter into a relationship with the holy creator and maker God. You have no business there outside 
of a relationship with Jesus, outside of his blood sacrifice, outside of Jesus, you have no warrant. It is like the police come to your door. (laughs) They want to enter and search the premises, and you say, because you've seen all those crime shows, do you have a warrant? (laughs) We have no warrant, we just want to come in. Well, I'll see you again. Come back when you got a warrant, right? Shut the door in their face, right? You feel powerful, and then you're like, what are they looking for? (laughs) Why are the police showing up at my door? There will no warrant. They have no right to enter that place. You come back from an authority higher than yourself. Get a piece of paper from a judge. From authority higher than you, you make an oath and a promise and a swear on something higher than yourself that when you come in, that you will uphold the statutes of that warrant. Then you may enter in. So in a strange way, that illustration switches in a positive manner, right? That Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies. He is our warrant for access to God. He is our guarantee, and he is our mediator. You know, like Jesus is a lot of things. Well, yeah, if you haven't been at church much, you'll find that out, right? Jesus does a lot. He gives you access to open the door and enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, a relationship with the Holy Creator, Maker, God, the one before angels prostrate fall. And yet you, you and me, as it says in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, that you can walk boldly before the throne to receive help in time of need, because you know that person. You know them and they know you. You have a mediator who mediates that relationship. You have a guarantee that they will keep you their word because they have followed through. And then you have a forerunner who goes before you, who is your warrant, who is your precursor, who is your, your pioneer and your founder. So the world tells you to keep the faith and to not lose hope and to muster up the strength from within. But the big difference here is the world and the culture is often telling you to look within, to find that hope and that meaning and that strength to soldier on by soldiering and pulling up your bootstraps and keep on keeping on. Look within for your truth. You ever hear that lately? Find your truth from within. Speak your truth. Fact is, the passages here in Hebrews and the Bible really teach us not to look within for hope, but to look without. To recognize that my hope doesn't come from me, but my hope comes from Jesus. We look to Jesus, we look to him, for he is our hope. He is our savior. He is the anchor in which that, so, that holds me down in the time of the storm. Jesus, my living hope, he goes behind the curtain. It's Matthew 27, 51. When Jesus died on the cross and the world went dark and it says in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Jesus mediated the presence for you to come to God and find a restored relationship in his presence. He is the guarantee of God's promise. He is your hope. He is our forerunner, pioneer, and founder of our faith. And he, as we're gonna look at next week, is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, both a king and both a priest for us. He is the anchor that stabilizes our soul. Josh and I uh, had the opportunity to go up to the state house this last week 
and to sit in on a few uh, bills that were being presented and to learn about the processes in our local state in Concord here uh, to see how and which things are going on. And we were sitting in on a, on a bill that was being presented to try to take away the right to life bill that's going on here in New Hampshire that establishes some limitations on abortion within our state. For up until just recently, there was unlimited abortion here in New Hampshire. But just until now, there is limits at 24 weeks. And now many people are trying to take that away. So we went up to testify and see and to, to oppose some of the work that's going on and just to experience. And it's fascinating. One of the things we came away from it as we were driving home we were talking in the car, and I, I didn't check any of this with you, Josh, but I hope you don't mind, but uh, Josh and I sharing a personal illustration. That's what happens when you're friends with a pastor, you might get used in a sermon, right? But he was talking about really, in a sense, how, 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 so, how it's so striking when you're around people who have no grounding, they have no moral foundation, they have no anchor, and you can really get the sense in those times when the clear difference is so clear in your face. There is nothing to ground what they do. It's literally made up upon each generation, makes it up as they go. And to think that we come into a place where we submit ourselves as the catechism says that we are not our own. We belong to God. And his word gives us grounding and foundation and a rock on which to stand. When the storms of life come at you, you have grounding and hope that doesn't see it right now, maybe no, but my anchor goes behind that curtain and I am attached to God and I will be forever and he will keep his word. And he gives me a sense and a moral understanding and a compass on which to live my life and wisdom to navigate the very difficult things of this world. And to have that as a basis and a grounding that if you don't have any of that, I think life is exhausting. It's anxious, it's full of worry. I'm having to define everything based on me and myself and I. But rather when I stand holding fast to Jesus as my hope, as he is the one who defines my being and my meaning and my reason for life, he has created, I do not belong to myself, I belong to him. This God of hope is the one who fills me now with joy and peace, as it says in Romans, in all believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I may abound in hope. I'm gonna close with lyrics of a song that I found this week. Some of you may know it's a, it's a newer hymn called Hold Me Fast. And the hymn goes like this. It says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And the chorus says, for my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray to you knowing, God, that you will hold us fast. 
and we hold on to the hope that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of a soul, the hope that goes behind the veil. Thank you for sending Jesus as our forerunner of our faith. We imitate through faith and patience the ones who've gone before, and we look forward to the race that is set before us. Teach us to run. Strengthen us in your grace. Answer the doubts and questions that we might have. Be our understanding, be the knowledge that we need, be our wisdom. May you be all things, no matter where we find ourselves in the storm, in the desert, in the valley of the shadow of death, whether we find ourselves beside still waters. Lord, would you quiet our soul? Would you strengthen us? Would you be the shepherd of our souls? God, we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing. We praise you in this time and we glorify you with our song. In Jesus' name, amen.